0: This morning, um, if you have a Bible, you can open it to John chapter 13. We are going to be looking at an interaction between Jesus and Peter. It's one that, uh, if you're at all familiar with the Bible, you probably know of this fairly well. Um, And it has a lot to do with specifically Peter following Jesus, being a follower of Jesus and what that looks like for him. Following people is... um, Following someone can either be easy or difficult, and it all depends on who that person is and where they're going. And uh, you can say you're going to follow a person, and they can make it very difficult for you. Uh, I like to do that when people are, like, following me in their cars, and, you know, I know they have to stay with me or whatever, and just anywhere I go, they're going to go, you know. And um, it's not, like, a nice thing to do because you're punishing someone for just, you know, staying with you. But, um, you know, you can make, like, eight right-hand turns until they go, I feel like this is not how... Oh, well. well. Um, and, you know, I'll get in a roundabout and stay in there for a long time or whatever, like way too long. Um, but I, uh, you know, w- the the one time years ago when I was a youth pastor, I was going with a group of high schoolers, and we were in Mexico. We were building houses, and we were coming back across the border, and we... Uh, You know, everybody knows if you've gone through, uh, gone across the border back in the United States that it gets a little crazy, a little hectic, a little unpredictable. Um, Sometimes the border crossing is like 20 minutes, sometimes it's like six hours, eight hours, like crazy amounts of time. And so we knew, stay in a line of cars, don't get separated from each other, and just stay together and we'll be okay, you know? And of course, the car in front of me, I think the one Ellie was driving, I was the last car in the line. She got through the light and I just didn't think I could make it. There was like a Mexican police officer next to me. I was like, the only thing I'm afraid of more than getting separated is this guy seeing me run a red light. I think red and green, the same thing in Mexico in terms of the lights. So I just stopped and uh, we got separated and that began us spending six hours, like lost basically in Tijuana, right? A great place to be lost with a car full of like 15 year old boys and um, who were all reminding me, because they thought it was so funny how mad their parents were going to be, um, that I got them lost in Mexico. And so we, we eventually made it back. I mean, Tijuana is a very kind of a crazy place, hard to figure out where we were going. Finally got into this lane to go back to the border, and we actually were moving a lot quicker than everybody else. And we're like, oh, this is great. God's answered our prayers, you know? And uh, it turned out it was like that fast pass where basically you have to have a special pass to get through for like commuters. And the guy, I mean, I was like, I'm like the guy's like an American, I mean, he's going to let us in, right? He's... I'm like, come on, man, we're here. I'm like a youth pastor building houses, good thing. I just got in the wrong line. He's like, yeah, I totally hear you, man, and I'm like sympathizing with you, and so I'm not going to give you a ticket for being in this line. And then he lets me in, and he turns me right around and sends me back to to Tijuana to spend another four hours in the car. So we (laughs) sat in the car for four hours, barely moving. Now, if you've been across the border, you know that there is a, a large group of people who make a lot of money by selling things to people in cars waiting at the border. Uh, sell food, sell all kinds of high-quality goods that will last forever, I'm sure. And, um, and so when I was a kid and I was growing up, my dad taught me the most important rule, I'll always remember it, I'll teach it to my kids, it was uh, don't make eye contact. Uh, taught me walking through the fair. He said, don't you make eye contact, don't make eye contact. And so I knew that, so we're driving and I'm not making eye contact. And then these kids are just going totally crazy. They've been losing their minds. They've been like... I mean, just, it's been a a mess, and we're like one hour away from finally getting across the border. Finally, a kid just stands up, he sticks the top half of his body out of the sunroof, and he like starts shouting down at the kids in the car. He's like, I don't know how to speak Spanish. How do you say I have lots of money? I wanna buy everything. (laughs) And they're like, here's how you say it. And he just starts yelling it in Spanish, and we got sworn, we got mobbed by people who uh, then sold us lots of high quality goods. So we eventually made it across the border into San Diego, We were six hours behind everybody else in our group, and that was the time that uh, I really feel like I experienced what it is to try to follow somebody and see how difficult it can be and what the stakes are. And this is how this following thing works, right? There's like all kinds of situations where you say, I'm going to follow someone, and you know, it's not a life or death situation, or they're a pretty easy person to follow. But uh, this account with Peter and Jesus is exactly what it looks like when someone is doing that very thing, and following gets so difficult that even the best seem to fail at it. Um, I want to look at John chapter 13. Did I say 18? 13, okay, good, because we're going to jump to 18. It's confusing. So um, we're going to look at John chapter 13, just a few verses where Jesus, before he's arrested, predicts what's going to happen here with Peter, and I'll put it up on the screen too. Uh, This is uh, as Jesus is telling them that he's going to be leaving them. We read, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. So Peter says to Jesus, I will lay my life down for you. And Jesus says, he asks him this question, you know, will you? Will you really, Peter? Now, Peter is a wonderful example of what a disciple of Jesus ought to be. He is considered throughout all the Gospels to be sort of the first among equal of these disciples. He is the first name that comes up every time the disciples are all listed off. You know, probably just kind of mumble through, you know, and name a couple, and then just, you know, the rest of them, right? So Peter, that's a big one. He's always the first one listed off. He's the third disciple to come to follow Jesus. Uh, The first two are disciples of John. They're following John. They're looking for the Messiah. John is talking about him, and they think that he's God's person, and so they stick with him. And then eventually, Jesus comes along, and because they're Smart enough, and John tells them to do this, they go, okay, well then, Jesus is the one to follow now. So they leave John, they follow Jesus, and one of them, Andrew, goes to his brother who's a fisherman, Simon, and he says, the Messiah's here, we should go follow him. Now, uh, chances are, uh, both of these brothers were kind of interested in this idea of who the Messiah was and following him, because Andrew goes and tells his brother, and uh, this livelihood of fishing, they shared it with their father. Uh, they walk away from it and they become disciples of Jesus and they go on to follow Jesus at great cost during his entire ministry. In so many different ways, we see how good Peter is. He is such a good disciple. He is bold and he is courageous. He's the first one to step out of the boat, to walk on the water. He is the first one to take a step of faith in an uncertain situation when Jesus calls them to do it. The first one to ask a question a lot of the times. He's the one to draw the sword out, to strike off the ear, which, you know, probably not a good idea. But honestly, when we say I'm going to give my life for someone, isn't that one aspect of that is to say I'll defend that person when they are wrongfully arrested and possibly going to be taken to their death? He's the first one to act when a call is given. He's bold. He's courageous. But oftentimes a lot of people who are really bold are that way because they kind of have a very, sort of a simple view of things. You just kind of aim them in the direction of something and they're gonna run at it like a bull. Maybe even if they don't have the best reason all the time. But Peter's not like that. Peter's bold and courageous, but he's also thoughtful. He's also thinking through all this stuff. How do you know? Because he asks all these questions. Questions that make him look foolish. Questions the other disciples are probably like, stop asking questions, Peter. Because when you ask questions, he gets specific. And then when he gets specific, our life gets harder, right? And there's more that we have to deal with now, right? But he's the one asking the questions. He's the one, like, constantly just wanting to understand. Okay, help me me figure this out, Jesus. I want to know. He's thinking through every aspect of what it means to follow Jesus. He's deep and he's thoughtful. And we are grateful for this because... These are a lot of the questions that we would ask. These are the questions that we want to know the answers to. We're grateful that Peter's there to ask these questions of Jesus. And on top of this, he's humble. He is the first one to say, Jesus, you should not be washing our feet. And then when Jesus convinces him he should, he's like, okay, fine, then wash everything. Wash my whole body. Jesus is like, calm down, Peter, right? Like he just, he really, really wants to do the right thing. On top of that, he's... And this is really important in the context of what's going on here in this situation. He's Jewish, and that's a big deal. Because even though the Jewish people as a whole would reject Jesus as their Messiah when he comes, the disciples that would follow him would be people who would be raised in this Jewish system, and they would be able to see how all of their forefathers had pointed to Jesus. It wasn't just a bunch of people who had never heard about any of this stuff that maybe would have believed anything that some guy who can do miraculous things would have said. It shows the fact that even though the scribes and the Pharisees were, were always the people that Jesus was seen to be arguing with the most, in the most heated ways, that it was Jewish people who would follow Jesus initially, and it was Peter, someone like him, who would grow up around this and who would know this is the Messiah that we've been looking for. It gives so much credibility to what he's doing. In fact, when he, when he begins to be a minister for the gospel, um, God has to give him a vision to sort of show him that the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people are okay, that he can eat meals with them and he can share the gospel with them and that that they're just as worthy as everyone else. That shows you that he kinda has some of that same view that all the other Jewish people that Jesus encountered had and yet he sees the Messiah for, for who he is and he wants to follow him. Above all else, Peter is faithful. He has followed Jesus everywhere. He's given up his livelihood, which is everything at this time. He's walked away from his family business. He's walked away from his father. He's given up that so that he could follow Jesus. He has no home, no place to rest his head. He has no food. He has no reliable source of income. And yet, he has continued to follow Jesus every step of the way until now. He is faithful. He really is a true disciple. And on top of this, Jesus sees these things about him and clearly rewards them. You see, Peter has, uh, it's one thing to to give things up and to be sacrificial when you know that the people that matter most to you, your community, are going to at least recognize that, right? We all know what that's like because we can do all kinds of good things and put them on Facebook and then all of our friends will be like, you're awesome. And then we're like, good, okay, that wasn't quite so hard, right? But imagine being Peter, doing all of these things and following Jesus that he's attempting to do. And then having the very Jewish community around him basically say, no, you're not one of us. You guys are not believing in the right things. To get turned out by even then. But he remains faithful. And what does Jesus do as a result? Jesus says, you're the rock on which I want to build the church one day. He says, I want you to feed my sheep. He brings him up on this mountain and is transfigured in front of him. Not all the disciples go, just three of them. Peter gets to see Jesus sort of like lit up with the glory of God. Moses shows up, that's kind of crazy. Elijah shows up, that's a really big deal. And he sees them and even says, can I set up, can I set up dwellings for them? And the word dwelling means tabernacle. Can I, can I set up a place to worship? Because You're here, God, in such a real way. There should be a church here right now trying to contain you. Jesus brings Peter up and shows him. Peter's the one who says to Jesus for the first time, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, you're the Son of God, you're God. Peter's the guy that sees that and gets to see it and recognize it. Peter gets the first and biggest component of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. He gets it. He's amazing at it. And if you ever want to know what it looks like, look at Peter. And it's this. Discipleship is this, to know Jesus. To be a disciple means to know Jesus, right? So we go through the book of John. We're getting closer to the end, right? To be a disciple, we've heard it all throughout. It's not just to take all the rules that we covered, all the teachings, and to try to live by them. It's not just to learn all the stories and tell them to your kids and get them to learn them. It's not just to be around a bunch of people who believe in that stuff, and that's better than nothing. No, it's to actually know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, then all of that other stuff might help point you to Jesus. But if you don't know Jesus, if you don't actually say, I'm going to fix my eyes on him, and I'm going to move towards him, that is first and foremost what discipleship is, and that's what Peter gets. Peter is all about Jesus. He loves him, he's given up his life for him, he wants to follow him. But one thing, even more than this, that we know is true, if you believe everything you've read about in John up until this point, one thing you know is true is this, that uh, Jesus isn't ever wrong. And so Jesus says, you will deny me. You'll deny me three times. And so somehow, this great disciple is going to do this terrible thing We read on in chapter 18, after Jesus has been arrested and uh, his trial has begun, he's been taken away. Peter struck a guy's ear with a sword. Jesus healed it, said, relax, I'm in control. I know what I'm doing. If you jump ahead to John 18, verses 15 on, he says this. We read that Simon Peter followed Jesus And so did another disciple. And since that disciple was known to be a high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl, who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the servants on officers had made a charcoal fire. Because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. You could stop right there. So, right off the bat, Peter's kind of lucky. Because he he really kind of can't get in to see Jesus. This other guy that he knows, he knows some people, and he goes right in with Jesus to follow Jesus. And Peter's like, I'm going to stay out here. It's like I'm not supposed to be in there anyway. Okay, right? Nobody knows what that's like. When you're like, I probably should do something. I don't really want to. Oh, look, I can't. Okay, shoot, right? So he's standing out there waiting. But then his friend pulls through. It's like, I can get you in, right? Goes to the girl at the door and says, I know this guy, he's one of us. You can let him in. So she goes to Peter. She says, hey, come on in, right? Are you one of his disciples? And he goes, nope, I'm not. He just lies to her. He says, nope, I'm not. So what starts out is, uh, oh, good, now I just don't have to do anything, you know, turns into a lie. Him saying, no, I'm not, with him, one of his disciples, denying him. And then going and standing around this place to stay warm. Not a good spot to stand, because there's officers and other people, it turns out. And that's gonna, he's gonna regret that at some point. Just a little foreshadowing. Now, I don't think if this is a new idea if you ever tried to follow Jesus, this, this idea of, like, knowing you're probably supposed to do something, but not really wanting to, and not really maybe having the courage to do it or something, maybe because it's going to cost you something personally, and, and so you just kind of, oh, look, how convenient. I don't think I can in this situation. But you didn't really try that hard, right? Then, then you can do it, and you go, well, okay, now I just am not going to do it. When I was a youth pastor, we went to uh, this event in Bakersfield where we were, and there was this group called Jesus Shack, this place downtown, and they put on this big Thanksgiving. Uh, uh, giveaway and basically uh, families that didn't have a lot of money they could come and um, we, they would give out like clothing and food and toys, they'd give out a turkey dinner, they'd give out all kinds of different stuff and then the last thing that they would do is they'd pray for people and so a, person, a family would walk in and they would get a card and on the card had all these little stops and once you stopped at all the different things you went and got your turkey dinner right? So uh, one of the stops was the prayer tent and uh, they put me and some kids on the prayer tent. And I was like, ah, shoot. I do not want to do this. Um, I want to give a turkey dinner to a family, because that would be awesome, right? Uh, maybe do some kids' games, right? High schoolers love doing that. Um, we're fun, right? We're fun. So. Uh, so they put us all in the prayer thing, and I was like, well, you know, I'm in charge, so I'm just going to delegate and stuff like that, right? That's probably what they need. So I'm going to organize and delegate. So I just kind of stood back, and yeah, you do this, you do this, you do this. Because I just, this idea of, like, people would walk by, and you had to kind of shout out to them, right? Like, uh, and, and they knew. They were raised right, so they weren't making eye contact. And so you had to shout out to them <laughs> and be like, come on, would you like me to pray for you? Can I pray for you, right? Can I pray for you? I'll take your card and pray for you. Can I pray for you? Anything I pray for? But then it was just me And this one kid, and he was definitely not going to pray for people. And I was like, shoot, okay, now I have to pray for them. And so I was like, okay, I'm avoiding it. This is, okay, now I have to do it. Of course, it turns out to be like the tremendous blessing of being able to pray for people who had incredible stuff going on in their lives. And it was like, I can't believe that I just asked you if I could pray for you. And this is the thing that happened to you today or even right now or something. And it was so wonderful to do it. But, you know, absolutely was not going to do it until I had to, right? You guys don't know what that's like at all, right? We get put in these situations, and we think, okay, I don't want to, but I will if I have to. And then we even don't do it beyond that. There are so many reasons why Peter would say, I'm not his disciple. There's so many reasons why he would not go in. One, how... Does it help you, Jesus? if I go in here and I get in trouble too? I mean, you're Jesus you don't need do you need me? you know you don't need me probably. aren't you supposed to build a church on me or something? So you do need me? You need me out here, right? Not in there, okay, that makes sense. There's all kinds of ways that it really makes no sense that in following Jesus that we would do things that actually make our life worse not better especially if you're following Jesus and your experience with that for a while is that it makes your life better because that's how Jesus is supposed to work right i mean up until this point Jesus has been helping peter he has been pouring into peter's life and all of a sudden Jesus is gone and now peter's like wait i'm supposed to help him i'm supposed to go in no that's not what he wants and he lies Following Jesus often requires a person to do what seems to be very irrational. But this isn't, the things that we're called to do actually aren't that irrational when you think about it. It's just that they violate sort of our prime directive, which is self-preservation, right? The most natural thing that we feel, it seems, which is to just not do anything that's going to actually hurt me my life, for my family, or the people that that are close to me, right? Why would God want that to happen? Most of the Christians that I've heard from who have sacrificially given of themselves in the name of Jesus in some way, who have made conscious choices to, in following Jesus, do things that actually make their life harder or take away from the quality of this best life that they're trying to have. Most of the people I know who have ever done that in like a tangible way that I've seen, they have just as many disciples in their life saying, God would not want you to do this. He would not want that for your life. As they have in their life saying, this is what it means to follow Jesus, even though it's hard. And this is one of the difficult things about following Jesus alongside other people. And you read about people who have done big things in the world that have been hard, and you will read about the people in their lives who said, no, don't do it. How does it make any sense? It's not rational. It doesn't look like it would amount to much, so don't worry about it. Do this thing instead. Here's how building your kingdom will always help build God's kingdom, is a lot of times what those voices will say to us. There is no way that the church could have begun. There's no way the gospel would have been preached. There's no way that these men would ultimately be able to do the things that Jesus was training them to do without choosing at some point to do things and to live in a way that put them in harm's way. There was no way that any of the things he would ultimately call them to do and us to do that a disciple of Jesus should do will not eventually lead to a regular lifestyle of saying, this isn't in my best self-interest, but that doesn't mean that I don't go in. But then we read on, and it gets even worse, unfortunately. We read in verses 25 through 27. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once A rooster crowed. Peter has now not just avoided going in, not just lied about going in, but he's denied Jesus as his master in order to stay out three times. Why three times? Why does it happen like this? Because this shows us that what happens with Peter isn't just a fluke, it isn't just a moment of lapse bad judgment. That even the best of people can have. What happens here is who Peter is. Just as much as all the good things that Jesus sees in him and that he can do, this is also who Peter is. He's ultimately a person who, when put to the ultimate test, when confronted with the thing he's most afraid of, won't be faithful, it seems. See, this is the way it works, right? Somebody does something this many times. That's who they are, right? Pastor Matt pulls up in his car next to mine and parks in the parking lot, opens his door and slams it into mine. I'm like, okay. Matt was excited. Matt likes coming to work, right? Likes parking close to me. Likes being close to me, right? Matt does it again the next day. Opens his door, slams it into mine. Okay. I'm going to pray for Matt. I'm going to pray that God, you know, changes his heart, I don't know, anyway. Matt does it a third time, that's who he is, right? (laughs) He's that guy, okay? I mean, I'm not gonna be naive, right? I'm not gonna just be a doormat, right? That's who he is, right? You know, my kid does something three times and a teacher tells me about it, I think we've got a problem here we need to deal with. It wasn't just a day of no sleep, it wasn't just a day of, you know, being too hungry or being kinda cranky, right? That's how we work. We look at someone, we see this happen, we go, Oh well, yeah, that's probably who they are. This is who Peter still seems to be. So no matter how bad he wants to be a fully committed follower of Jesus, the truth is he's not. Ouch. And he's the good one. He's the good example of what it means to follow Jesus. But he is being tested. Because now Jesus has left them. And so now, for the first time, he's alone. And he's afraid. He's cold. That doesn't help. And now, for the first time, he also knows that following Jesus doesn't mean I will be alive tomorrow. Because now he's putting together all the pieces of the things Jesus said about I'm going to go somewhere and the temple's going to be destroyed and oh, wait. I think I know what's going to happen here to Jesus himself. And in that moment, when all of that hits him, he denies again and again and again, thinking, I just have to make it through this, and then we'll figure things out. He says to Jesus, I will lay my life down for you, but in the end, he doesn't. Peter believed something that we are so prone to believe, and it was this. He believed that if he loved Jesus enough, that he would do the right thing. Because isn't that all there is to being a disciple, right? Knowing Jesus, loving Jesus, seeing how great Jesus is. If I see how great he is, because he's so great, then it won't matter. I know that in the end, I will be able to do it, because I couldn't, possibly i couldn't possibly betray something that great the second part to being a disciple is to know yourself and this is the thing that peter has yet to learn peter knows what it looks like to love jesus but it isn't until this situation that we see him confronted with completely and totally himself And he learns this hard truth that you can love something and it can be so great and worthy of your love. It can be worthy of your faithfulness. It can be worthy of all these things that Jesus himself is worthy of and yet you can still fail. Why? Because of who you are. But not if the thing's good enough. And we know what this is like. We know so well what this is like. Yesterday, I was, um, I was hanging out with my kids. So I have Fridays and Saturdays off. And on Friday, I made the mistake of starting to vacuum out my car. And there was some ink on the seat. And I got the carpet cleaner out. And I started cleaning it up. And it wasn't the ink that came out that caught me, my eye. It was, the, it was all the brown stuff that came out around the ink from the car seat. Now, there's two kinds of people in the world. There's people who are addicted to that kind of thing. And then there are people who are like, ugh, yuck, I don't care, right? Well, I disappeared for like eight hours into this car with a carpet cleaner, just like cleaning out everything. And I kind of ignored my kids and my family for the day. And so I was going to bed that night, and I was like, Ellie, feel, I feel bad. I feel like I, you know, I just made a joke, like I have an addiction to a carpet cleaner, don't let me near the carpet cleaner, you know? I just can't, I can't fight it. I can't give in, you know. I was trying to find, I was going all over town trying to find this carpet spot removed that I couldn't find, right? It's like not good. So I said, tomorrow I'm gonna spend the day, I just wanna, to be here, I'm gonna hang out with the kids all day. Um, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a bunch of stuff with them. Um, last week at the camping trip, there was an auction. And at the auction, people come and they bring stuff and then they auctioned it off and we buy it and we make money. And there was one thing that we, that I tried to bid on. It was uh, Marvel Shoots and Ladders. It was this. And um, I, I bid on it because my son was there. It's a low blow, right, to have an auction with stuff while your kids are there. Um, and so I got up to $12 for this thing. And uh, Mark Datria, he just out of nowhere bids $25, right? <laughs> I'm like, who does this, right? Who does this? the only thing I bid on the whole time, okay? And then he wins it, surprise, surprise, for $25. And then afterwards, my son's so sad, he's so upset. And then afterwards, after my family had left, he walks up and he gives me the board game. So, it is his fault that I and my kids had the worst day that we've ever had in our relationship yesterday. Because If you want to lose all hope in your children's ability to do anything that they will need to be able to do in life, play a board game with them that is age appropriate, okay? Because I now know that uh, Tegan's teachers were lying all the report cards and all the good everything. Nope, none of that's true because they said he could count. They said he could follow like basic directions. They said he knew what colors were and what direction arrows went. They like, these were all things that he's supposed to be so great at, right? You see the age on that box? Three and up, okay? My kids are five and seven. And it was the worst experience I've ever had in my life. Like. The worst and I picked this game because I was like there's no way shoots and ladders there's no way right it's so simple shoots go down ladders go up you spin and you move that's it right now I'd like to show you okay what I'm talking about all right and I'm gonna try not to take too much time from this because I know that we're talking about important Bible things here but <laughs> let's say that my son is on this space and he spins a six right somehow miraculously he spins a number and it's a six right and because it's a high enough number that the game gets anywhere so he spins a six and where would you go would you go this way or this way Well. We have to figure that out because we forgot after the last turn. And so we say, well, what number are you on? What's the number that comes after that? Where is that number? And then eventually we get to going in this direction. But once we move in this direction, we pass this guy, which is very distracting, very distracting, and our mind immediately takes us up in this direction, even though we're not supposed to go in that direction. And so we go back and we start again. Then we realize that there's a difference between saying one before you lift the piece and saying one after you move okay (laughs) lift it up then say one then two nope doesn't work right so we have to go back to when we say one we lift it up then we say one right then we lift it up we begin to move we finally make it here where in the world do i go now right well we go i don't know We go up, maybe, right? But then once we start going up, shouldn't we keep going up? No, we shouldn't keep going up. We should go this way. That's impossible. There's no way that that's going to happen. And then what are we passing here, the middle of a ladder? Well, shouldn't I get on that ladder? Isn't that what I do when I see the middle of a ladder somewhere? Well, that's what my kids do. And so we get on the ladder and we go back up. And it, it takes us so long to go one turn. Now, I love my children and I say they are wonderful and my love for them is is big enough and good enough that I should be able to play a board game with them knowing that it doesn't really matter who wins and we're just spending time together anyway, knowing that that I should be able to play a board game with them and out of a five-year-old and a seven-year-old, I'm not the one that flips the board, right? (laughs) But that's not what happens both times that we played the game. I, I didn't even cover, by the way, like landing on a line or landing in the corner of a square randomly because that happens too. I mean, there's so many things I'm not covering right now that my kids found a way to do wrong when playing Shoots and Ladders. Now, the thing that really bothers me is if my mother-in-law were doing this with them, she would just take an hour out of her life. She would, she would teach them all of the things that you need to know how to do in this and then it would be a great experience and they'd be better people as a result of it. But not me. <laughs> you can love someone and you can say they are like worthy of me being able to do the right thing for them. But there's this other part of the equation and that other part of the equation is you. It's your ability to do the right thing. And that's the thing that gets in the way again and again and again. Is you say, I want to do this for Jesus. I want to do this for my spouse. I want to do this for my children. I want to sacrifice myself for them. And yet, I get in the way. Not them, not life circumstances, but I get in the way. Because the other half of what this looks like is to know yourself. You can know everything there is to know about Jesus, but if you are unaware of what's going on in here, then you cannot be a successful disciple. And this is one of the hardest things for us. But what we see in Peter is someone who loves Jesus and has made his whole life about following Jesus, but is just now, it seems, beginning the process of knowing that he still might blow it. Unless he starts looking inward at the things that he's really afraid of. The things that are really difficult for him. This is a hard truth. But ultimately, it's one that any disciple has to learn. Now, that's not to say that a Christian is supposed to be this self-absorbed, constantly guilt-ridden person who does nothing but look inward and try to understand their inner everything. But it is to say that the disciple of Jesus is teachable, that their heart is open. And this seems to get harder the longer people follow much of the time. A couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine, I have a friend who's in recovery as an alcoholic, and he said to me, at some point, you should come to a meeting with me, an AA meeting. I think that you would really learn a lot, and it would be really a good thing for you to come to, even as, just as a pastor. And so I came to the meeting with him. It meets right here at the Presbyterian Church uh, across the street, and we, came to the, we went to this meeting together. Now, I'll be honest. When I walked in, my assumption going was I'm going to spend the evening with some probably some pretty weak and messed up people, you know. These are people whose lives have fallen apart and have had to dedicate themselves fully to just not doing one thing. And as I walked in this room and sat down and as we went through the entire meeting and people began to share all of their different stories, I realized that I was actually in a room with some of probably the most courageous and self-aware people that I had ever been around. Now, when, um, when I was there, uh, I read something. It was, we, they go through all of this, they read through things as a group, read through things, take turns reading through things, the 12 steps, stuff like that. And the first thing that you read is this paragraph, and it says, AA, how it works. And this is what it says there. It says, those who do not recover are people who will not completely give themselves to this simple program. Usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. Of all the different things to say, it isn't those who will learn the most about the disease, those who are the bravest, or the strongest, or the most disciplined, or the most sacrificial. It is those who can be the most honest with themselves about who they are. You even go on to read more and it says, there are those Two, who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders, implying that they have difficulty with this 12-step process because they have more going against them. But many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. And as I sat there as a pastor, in a room full of people in recovery, I realized how, why this matters so much for a person dealing with something that is a lifelong struggle. And as I sat there, and as, as people began to, there was a woman there who had been sober for three days. She was a mess. There was a person there who was celebrating his first week of sobriety. They gave him his coin for a first week, and then he shared. There was somebody who got his first year coin there, and he shared, and we celebrated that. And there was a man there who, that week, reached 10 years of sobriety, and got his coin, and was able to reflect on it and share with the group. I mean, there was a, a ton of sharing, I mean, that's kind of what everybody does at these meetings is every time they get a, the stage of any kind, anything that happens, they share their story. They talk again about where they were when they hit the bottom and why they needed to be here and all the places like where they've come, and, and most of them say, God brought me here and God did this in my life, but the thing that you see in common of all of them is they always go back to before. They got better, and they say, this is what I was like when this disease wrecked everything. And even the man who had been sober for 10 years, he said, I'm so afraid of this coin, of having this coin, because I'm afraid that I'll wake up tomorrow, and I'll think, now I'm better, now I'm cured, and I won't try. And he said, because I have so many friends who have reached this point and are dead, because they thought they beat it, and they stopped trying. Because they stopped being honest with themselves about who they were because they thought they didn't need to anymore. There is a need to go back again and again to say, who am I really? Not so that you're overwhelmed with guilt, not so that you're overwhelmed with shame, but so that you can be, one, grateful of where you are now, and two, because you know that, you're gonna have to deal with this tomorrow as well, and the next day after that. I mean, there's a million parallels between an AA meeting and probably things that should happen more in the church. I mean, the, th- the lady who was sober for three days, I was like, when is someone gonna get her out of this meeting? Because she won't stop talking, she's totally self-absorbed, she's like really driving me crazy, I, I, she's interrupting everybody else, she's making it all about herself, I'm pretty sure they're gonna kick her out, and that's gonna be really awkward. And they didn't. When she shared, somebody was like, "Oh man, I was in your place like 15 years ago. We should talk after the meeting." And I was like, "Man, they even make it easy for people who, you know, are new to like be a part of it." And me as a pastor, I'm like, "Get them out of here. You know, like they're they're messing up the vibe of this place, right?" (laughs) I. There is such value and power in being able to be honest with ourselves about who we are as we seek to be a disciple to follow jesus to go back and say who was i before the gospel who was i before jesus who am i without him what gets in the way of me following him it's not the world that gets in the way it's always someone else's fault it's not that god let me down it's not even the circumstances Because the thing that gets in the way of being a disciple of Jesus is the things that exist within our heart that we have to kind of root out and deal with. And the first step of that is being honest. Peter is a true disciple. Not just because he sees how good Jesus is and gives up sacrifices so much to follow him. He's a true disciple because he then begins to become aware of himself, the ways that he's blowing it. Can you even imagine? It says, it says that um, after, in Luke, it says that he went away and wept bitterly. Okay, this is like instant convicted just guilt, right? You just, you do something, you're made aware of it, and then you're, it immediately, the consequences of it immediately hit you. Sometimes it takes a while, sometimes someone has to help you realize it, but in this situation, it just hits him like a ton of bricks. How bad of a job he's doing at following Jesus, something that he thought was probably all he had at this point in his life. And then he goes away and he weeps bitterly. And then it makes you think about when Jesus is resurrected and he comes back and says, you know, uh, You know, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. It's almost like a counselor trying to talk to somebody who needs to get past something, right? Like repetition, repetition. No, Jesus, why would you want me to feed your sheep? Why would you want to build a church on me? I denied you. That's probably rule number one don't deny him, right? When put to a test. But Jesus again and again says, Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. What you see in that is that the Bible is filled with people who are a mess and God using those people, not because of the power that we have, but because of the power that he has. The theological significance cannot be overstated of the fact that while Peter, while Jesus was dying and not denying anyone or anything, that even his closest disciple was denying him. And that he would go on and he would use that person to do such great things. Not because he was perfect, but because he became more and more aware of what was going on in him, and he could combine that finally with knowing Jesus. That's what it means to be a true disciple. That's the second part.